morning. If uh, families so choose to make use of the meadow, now's the time to be dismissed. As we head into a difficult passage, now's your chance to escape. So you may want to take advantage of that. But those of us still here, uh, your Bibles can be open to Job chapter 1. Well, great suffering has a way of moving us. Like a river current, suffering tends to push us in one direction or the other. When it comes to our faith in the middle of suffering, you really can't be neutral, can you? Some turn from God, while others somehow seem to be driven closer to God. This was the experience of Menachem Daum, a documentary filmmaker whose parents were both Holocaust survivors. Both of his parents witnessed and endured unimaginable suffering as prisoners in the Auschwitz concentration camp, like the death of several family members, including their own infant son. Menachem reflects on how this impacted the faith of his parents. His father somehow held on to his faith through all of that. He had the philosophy that a God who limits himself to actions that we humans can understand can't possibly be God. His mother, on the other hand, completely lost her faith. As the family recited the Exodus story every year at Passover, she would get angry and say, if God did so many miracles during biblical times, why would he stand by silently while my family was being destroyed? It's an honest and agonizing question for someone who's gone through even a shadow of what she did. And it's a variation of this age-old question, how could a loving God allow, and you fill in the blank, right? We can speak to this in generalities. But we don't have all the answers when it comes to specific and terrible human suffering. Maybe you know people who lost their faith due to suffering and others who have somehow seemed to grow closer to God through it all. What makes the difference? We turn to this story of a man who endured unimaginable suffering yet held on to his faith. Continue our series in Job. We're calling the God we need in a world we can't always understand and very rarely, if ever, can control. We need to know who God really is. But despite our unanswered questions, he is good, he is loving, and he is trustworthy. This is true not just for our own personal suffering, but as we've already heard this morning, the state of our world. There's a pandemic still happening. And in our country, the polarization and division among us seems to be getting only worse And after the events of this week, people on both sides of the spectrum politically are saddened, worried, angry. So as we study Job, whether it's personal suffering, whether it's concerns about the state of our world and our country, let's bring all of those concerns, those emotions, those fears even to God, who rules over the whole earth, even when we don't understand or approve of the way that he rules the world. Last week, we began with the first five verses of the book where Job is faithful to God and God blesses Job beyond measure, right? This is the world we can understand in verses one through five. But now we venture over the precipice, past the point of no return into this honest and very troubling story. So don't expect neat and tidy answers as we move forward, certainly not from this one sermon. But let's begin to wrestle through this text together, depending on the Spirit's work among us. And as we approach Job's suffering, we can ask ourselves, would my faith hold up if I went through this? 
But this book is not just about suffering. It's more about the God revealed through Job's suffering. It's a book about the revelation of who this God is that Job worshipped. So maybe the better question is, is this God enough for me? This morning we'll see that all that Job lost in chapters 1 and 2 and consider how Jesus equips us with his grace to face any hardship, any trial, with a growing faith. Let's pray together as we turn to God's word. Lord Father, whatever is troubling us and concerning us right now, I pray we would know the peace of Christ as we come together to your word. Give us minds and hearts that bow in reverence and humility and adoration before you, ready to receive the truth of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So our story jumps from the scene that we saw last week, this opening portrait of the man Job, his godliness and his blessing, to this somewhat strange and already troubling scene in heaven. Look at chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. So this is a gathering of angels before God, a meeting time between God and all of his created supernatural helpers and messengers. But already we get the sense something's wrong, right? Because Satan came also among them. What in the world is going on here? Satan means adversary, seen throughout Scripture as the great accuser, the great enemy of God's people. So what is he doing here in this meeting? I imagine some of the angels, at least as I imagine this mysterious scene, I imagine some angels sort of whispering a little bit awkwardly to each other, who invited him, right? Evidently, Satan has access to this meeting. He's fallen, but won't be cast down completely until the final judgment, as we see in the book of Revelation. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. God asked Satan, where have you come from? God, of course, knows the answer. This is more of a conversation starter, right? State your business. What are you doing here? And Satan's evasive answer, oh, I've been around here and there. Our conversation can strike us a little bit too casual, right? But it's because this adversary really doesn't have a right to be here that that's why God says, state your business. And already we can hear the scheming answer, the evil intentions. But it's crucial for us to remember at this point that Satan is not God's rival in the dualistic sense of equals, Satan is a mere creature before Almighty Creator God. Scripture gives us some clues, not too many, but some, as to the spiritual warfare that's going on behind the scenes. Satan and his followers are actively opposed to the work of God in our lives. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, Be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so Peter says, resist him firm in your faith. So there is this personal evil at work in the world and in our lives we should never take lightly. But, on the other hand, we can easily give the enemy a little bit too much credit. As Peter writes just a few verses later, the dominion belongs to Christ. God is completely in control. God is completely in charge. As one commentator writes of this assembly, this meeting in Job, Satan is here more like a nuisance than an official. Satan only does what God allows him to do, and that may either be more comforting or more troubling for us, depending on our perspective, right? 
But Satan is not mentioned again in the entire book of 42 chapters after chapter 2 and verse 7. We don't see him again. God is on the throne, as he still is today. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? God describes Job in the same language that we saw last week in in, uh, verse 1. God is the one who brings up Job. God is proud of Job. Only a few verses and only a few people in Scripture are given this honored title, servant of the Lord, the Lord's servant. God is on the lookout for righteous people. Remember how God went looking in Sodom and couldn't find even a few righteous. There were times in Israel's history, his own people, where God couldn't find even one righteous person. The Lord delights in his servant Job. This is clear to Satan who wants to put an end to this relationship. Verse 9, Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. You see the clever point Satan is making here? This relationship, God, you have with Job is artificial. He only follows you because his faith has never really been tested. I mean, who wouldn't be faithful to a God that gives you all the blessings that Job has? So Satan's attacking God, too, here, not just Job, accusing God of getting Job's devotion through bribery, special treatment. Satan's smart. He knows enough to know that we humans are notorious for oftentimes giving just because of what we can get in return. That's true today of some professing Christians. We're only in it because of what we think we can get out of the deal. Satan's intentions are pure evil here. But he raises some really important questions. I like the way Francis Anderson captures them this way. Is God so good that he can be loved for himself, not just for his gifts? And can someone hold on to God when there are no benefits attached? Ask this question of yourself as we move further into this very difficult and troubling story. Am I committed to God only because of what he gives me? If Satan made this accusation about you and about me, would he be right? If this text isn't making you uncomfortable already, buckle up. Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The Lord agrees to Satan's proposal. How do you feel about that? This should startle us. This should surprise us. Satan hasn't tricked God or forced his hand. God is the one who started the conversation, didn't he? God is the one who sets the boundaries on what Satan is allowed to do. You can do this, Satan, but not that. The same is true in our lives. The enemy can do nothing that doesn't first get past God's approval. While Satan may think he's derailing God's plan, God's sovereign control is never in question. And again, that might bring us more comfort and that might bring us more concern. Because we're left wondering, can this God be trusted? A God who agrees to Satan's proposal here? The God who, at the very least, allows what is coming next? So the scene jumps back to earth, where Job has no idea of what's just transpired. We're privy to this scene. Job is not. 
He's about to lose everything. I'm going to read through this horrific episode, starting in verse 13. Just listen for the way the news is delivered. Poetically, there's a rhythm. It's a rapid-fire delivery of this news. Verse 13. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. One survivor from each of these separate tragedies escapes to bring the news seemingly all at once. Job's no doubt in shock as a fresh report comes one after the other, piling on all of his possessions, all of his animals, all of his servants, and all of his children gone in a moment. Just a moment before, the world made sense. Maybe that very morning, Job offered a sacrifice to God, as we saw last week, assuming all is well and all would be well, right? But now all of that is gone. The reports alternate between natural disasters and the actions of people reminding us spiritual forces have influence on all of that. It's human experience to suffer the effects of natural disasters, of terrorism, war, random violence. But all of this at once... It's too much. It's beyond coincidence. The terrible news is delivered and we're left here with Job in this silence. It's sort of like the reverence, respect we give to the grieving at a funeral. We're, we're hushed. We turn to Job. What's he going to say? How's he going to respond? Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Well, as shocked as we are by what's come before and all that Job has lost, I think we're equally shocked by Job's response. At least I am. His action is deliberate. Of the nine Hebrew words that make up verse 25 of them are verbs. Job arose, Job tore, Job shaved his head, he fell, he worshipped. That last verb is key. The tearing of the outer garment, the shaving of the head, this was a grieving custom in the ancient Near East. But he goes so far beyond custom and so far beyond our own expectations when he falls down and worships. His statement here is a model for all of us of humble submission to the divine will no matter what it is. It's so beautiful in its simplicity, in its poetic balance. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Job sees God as the sovereign ruler of all things. Nothing is given, nothing is taken away without God's say-so. 
And still, Job maintains that the Lord is worthy of praise. He is worthy of worship. I don't know about you. Maybe it's hard to relate to Job here. It seems an almost inhuman response, right? I mean, many have lost their faith over far less. But this is no false piety. His worship doesn't mean he's not struggling. His worship doesn't mean he's not feeling the intense agony of all that he has just lost. He's bringing that to the throne of God. He's saying, you are God and I am not. And right now that's all I know. And that's all I understand. And the author closes this chapter decisively by telling us Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Even in his the depth of his agony, Job didn't accuse God of being evil or being unjust. Contrast someone like the prophet Jonah who tells God he's wrong for doing something great like showing mercy. Job doesn't even do that when he loses everything. Job has no expectations that his devotion to God will spare him somehow from suffering and loss, nor should we. Can we, like Job, say, blessed be God, both when the Lord gives and when he takes away? I'm afraid many professing Christians are just fair-weather followers, if we can use that term. Just as the crowds that followed Jesus began to disappear, began to fall away when Jesus said something challenging or when times got tough, So already in the first chapter of Job, this book is calling us deeper. It's calling us beyond just a surface-level discipleship. Satan's argument is proven wrong, decisively. Job's devotion to God was not for nothing, but Job's ordeal is not done. Look at chapter 2. We won't take the time to walk through every verse here, but it's another scene in heaven. Satan shows up yet again. We have the same opening conversation God says, where have you been? Satan says, oh, here and there. And God repeats the same question in verse 3. Have you considered my servant Job? The same blameless and upright description is used again. He still holds fast his integrity. You can see Satan fuming as God repeats the same language. Job is unchanged. My relationship with my servant is still as it was, despite all you've done. But Satan doesn't give up. He says, Job's still faithful only because you didn't hurt him directly. Touch his flesh and bone, and then he'll curse you to your face. And again, the Lord agrees. Satan's allowed to hurt Job, but not to kill him. That's the limit here. Verse 7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Man, it just cannot get any worse here. Satan strikes Job with some kind of terrible disease. It's repulsive and it's painful. And remember here in verse 7, this is the last we hear of Satan. We don't see him again the entire book. So you would think Job's suffering can't get any worse, but now his wife chimes in in verse 9. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Wow, honey, thanks for the encouragement. She echoes some of the same words from the scene in heaven about holding fast his integrity and cursing God, but it's tempting to be too hard on her because, remember, she's just lost everything too. And she thinks she's probably about to lose her husband as well. And again, what is Job's response? We look again to this man. Certainly now you're going to curse God. Certainly now you'll turn away from God. Verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. 
Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So Job again turns to his trust in the sovereign God. The word for evil can be translated here, trouble. Job's not implying that God can do evil or sin, but he can bring or allow trouble in our lives, certainly things that can include the evil of other people as the evil of Satan is here at work. So here we have these two episodes of Job's incredible suffering and his maybe even more incredible response. But We can't expect tidy answers to all our questions at this point or to wrap it all up in a bow in the next five minutes, okay? But let's be sure that as we wrestle through this together that we're pointed in the right direction, and that is toward Christ. I have to agree with author Christopher Ashe when he writes that the book of Job makes no sense apart from the cross of Christ. Without Jesus, this book is nothing but the record of unanswered agony. And so with the prophets, this book points us to Jesus, the suffering servant. Jesus, in his perfect obedience to the Father, suffered the judgment of God for us, for our sin. It was terrible, Jesus' suffering. It was undeserved, but it was for a purpose, our salvation. So in Christ, no matter what we face in this life, our true blessings are eternal. The gift of salvation is a gift from God that will not be taken away. So if you're here with us in this room or online, you've not trusted Christ, maybe some of your unanswered questions are holding you back from faith. Maybe it's something you've experienced in your life, some suffering, some dark times. God has never promised us a life free from pain and suffering. And he's demonstrated his love fully to us in Christ. As Romans 5 says, God shows his love for us as while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's thoughts and God's ways are so high above our understanding, but so too is his love and his grace and his mercy. So if that's you, you're not sure about Christ or you're sort of opposed to faith in Christ, I invite you to take a step toward him, to find him loving and good and trustworthy. And as believers, just think about all we have more than Job had. All we know more than Job knew about our sure hope in Christ. And we have Christ's provision to face whatever God's will is for us. One of our church values is joy in suffering. This is something the world can never understand. How you can not only endure great suffering, but even have joy in the midst of it because of our unchanging relationship with God in Christ. So we have Jesus' provision, but are we partaking of it? Or have things of the world gotten in the way of a genuine worship of God for his own sake? Have we turned God's blessings in our lives into idols, ultimate things that we could never bear to lose? What would it be in your life that if you lost it, you would lose your faith? It could be your finances, your possessions, God forbid, a loved one. After the events of this week, we're reminded we can turn even the blessing of living in this great country into an idol. Whatever your political perspective, left or right, somewhere in between, what if this country is never again what you want it to be? How do we wrestle through that together? Can we place those concerns? 
Can we place those fears at the feet of Jesus and receive his provision? Provision of Christ should radically change the way we live in the midst of uncertainty, discomfort, disappointment, and with Job, deep suffering. We never want suffering, but we should never be surprised when it comes. I don't know about you, I I think I'm always surprised whenever something bad happens, right? Get a flat tire, and it just seems, why is this this happening to me, right? As Peter says in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. We do that, though, don't we? God, what are you doing? Do you still love me? Are you angry with me? Don't you want me to be happy? But Peter says, expect it. This isn't strange. This is normal. This is expected. And even more, Peter goes on to say, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Have joy in suffering. It's Peter's command. And if it's a command, that means we're able and equipped to obey it. Christ suffered once for all, but Peter tells us that suffering is part of our calling as disciples as we, in some way, share in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. We're not exempt from that. And so we're baffled why God chose the most righteous man in the East to go through this. And I think it's precisely because he's the most righteous man in the East. Have you considered my servant Job? God holds him out to Satan. God holds Job's story out to us. Century after century, this story stands as a model for all of God's people for how to suffer well and keep your eyes on God the whole time. So maybe we should be careful when we tell people, God loves you, he's got a wonderful plan for your life. Maybe our definition of wonderful is a little bit different than God sometimes. I mean, it's true. But God's wonderful plan for your life might involve pain. It might involve terrible suffering and heartache. For Job, God's wonderful plan for his life was to anticipate the perfect obedience and the perfect suffering of Christ, maybe more than anyone else in Scripture. What an incredibly high calling. And what a terribly, terribly hard road. God chooses some of his most faithful servants to go through the deepest valleys. We see that in Scripture, and we see that in experience, people that we know. Some in this church family have followed Christ through incredibly dark valleys, and you've been a light for Christ to the rest of us. Teresa of Avila was a 16th century nun. She's known for her writings on the spiritual life. And there's a story that goes something like this. As she traveled to her convent during a fierce rainstorm, she fell off her horse She slipped down an embankment. She fell squarely in the mud. And she believed God was speaking to her in her misery, saying, Don't be discouraged, Teresa. This is how I treat my friends. To which the soaked and mud-covered nun replied, If this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few. So as we read Job 1 and 2, we have to ask the question, God, is this really how you treat your friends? This is part of our needed wrestling with the ways of God. Can God really be loved and worshipped and trusted for his own sake? Even if life brings not a single other blessing other than a relationship with God through Christ. 
Job would say yes, a resounding yes. St. Teresa, despite her sense of humor, would say yes. Countless martyrs throughout the centuries would say yes. But this is a personal thing, isn't it? We all have to move to the place where we can answer that question for ourselves. Think of the Apostle Paul, a model of devotion and service to Christ and all that he suffered. Imprisonments, beatings, stoning, shipwrecks, and finally death. In 2 Corinthians 12, he speaks of a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was. Maybe a physical ailment. Maybe just his suffering and hardship in general. And what does he say? A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So again, Satan is involved here, as with Job, but again, it's all part of God's plan. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Not what Paul wanted to hear. Not what we want to hear as we pray for relief. But the Lord's answer to Paul took him to a deeper place of dependence, a deeper place of trust. And he wants to take us there as well. Through a life of great blessing or Sometimes through a life of great suffering. So his grace is sufficient for us too. Not his grace plus our health. Not his grace plus our comfort. Or his grace plus our financial security. What You fill in the blank. Whatever the blessings are in your life. We give thanks for those blessings and we should. But his grace alone is all we really need. And so our faith can never really grow deeper if we're trying to fit our walk with God into other equal priorities. Following Jesus must be our greatest passion. It must be our greatest purpose in life so we can see clearly to see that his grace is sufficient. His grace is enough. Great suffering has a way of moving us. We can turn from God if our faith isn't deeply rooted, or we can cling even closer to God by his grace. And as we witness faithful believers walking with Christ through suffering, the world has to stop and take notice. Even in the darkness of the Holocaust, in the Nazi regime, the grace of Christ was present. It was for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who suffered imprisonment and finally execution in the Flossenburg concentration camp. But even through all that, the grace of Christ was enough for him. Bonhoeffer writes that suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. And the grace of Christ was enough for Corey Tenboom, who was sent to another concentration camp for helping Jews escape. And yet with all that she suffered, she could write, there is no pit so deep, but he is not deeper still. And Job, with all he suffered, could say honestly, with a heart of worship, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. May that be our prayer. May that be our prayer as we grow together in the grace of Christ. Would you bow with me? Our Father, we come before you in worship and adoration. With Job, we acknowledge that we are creatures. You alone are God. Your ways are higher than our ways and beyond our understanding. We ask you to forgive us for turning your blessings into idols. Would you grow us to see that your grace is sufficient, your grace is enough, 
the words that we sang earlier this morning, may those be true and more true in our hearts. You are worthy of worship and praise, even if you give us no other blessings than Jesus Christ who died and rose again for us. And so meet us this morning where we are, individually, as a church family. We ask your spirit to help us see that your grace is enough in our uncertainty, our disappointments, our anger, our pain, our fears, and our grief. Help us reflect that grace toward one another and our community that so desperately needs to see it. For the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.